Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome to episode 48 of Channel Journeys. This is Rob Spee, your host and founder of Channel Journeys. Well, thank you for listening. This is an uncertain time, to say the least, right now with most of us working from home in a mandated or self-imposed quarantine. And I really appreciate you spending your time listening to this podcast. I hope that you find it valuable and it's a positive distraction from everything that we're going through. I also want to shout out a big thank you to our sponsor, the Channel Institute. As you know, my mission is to expand and share knowledge of channel professionals, and that's exactly what the Channel Institute is all about, creating a channel profession. Every Channel Institute course has been reviewed and approved by an independent industry advisory council, and this council is comprised of senior leadership in the channel profession at many of the world's largest employers. You can see a list of that board of that industry advisory council on the Channel Institute website, and it's like a who's who in the channel. I've been taking the Certificate in Channel Management course, and I have to say, it's an awesome compilation of all the top topics that channel managers need to know. It has 10 modules on things like partner recruiting, onboarding and enablement, all the way through to joint business planning, incentives, deal registration, and and partner relationship management. And it teaches channel managers the basics of things like partner co-marketing, something that most CAMs probably don't know a lot about. And now really is an excellent time for you and or your channel team to get certified in channel management. And I will be sharing a special offer for you at the end of today's show. Well, today's guest has a super interesting background. He started his career as a communications officer in the Air Force, which led him next to the Pentagon and then a position doing cybersecurity in the White House. How cool is that? This guy, Vince Chrysler, he is the CEO of Dark Cubed, a cybersecurity SaaS company. And we talk about the security risks that companies and MSPs face today. We explore his successful journey of going through not one but two major transformations. The first was he converted his product from an on-prem model to as-a-service, software-as-a-service, which is not an easy transformation for any vendor or partner. And the second was moving his sales from a direct model to discovering the necessity of the channel for his company's success and really going all in into a 100% channel model through MSPs. Vince really found some creative ways to test the market and find partners that I'd never tried before. So you're going to really be interested in hearing that. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Vince, good morning. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Rob. How are you? I am charged up. I am, <laughs> <laughs> I am eager to learn about security because it is not my strength. It is not an, an area that I've worked a lot in. So I'm really eager to hear more about it and, and the work that you're doing and the transformation that, that you've had as a company and, and that channel transformation. So uh, where do we find you today? I'm based out of Washington, D.C., so just over the river in Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. Have you always lived there? I actually grew up in southeastern Ohio and went off to the Air Force and traveled the world before ending up back here in D.C. Ah, okay. We've got to talk a little bit about that Air Force experience. I'm curious about it. So, Vince, just really high level. Tell us about your company and what you're doing. 
Yeah, so my company's Dark Cubed. We are a software as a service company focused on bringing cybersecurity capabilities to small and mid-sized companies. You know, where a lot of traditional security companies are thinking about security from a Gartner Magic Quadrant perspective, we're thinking about it from an actual, how do you make this work in small and mid-sized companies and help secure those businesses? And have you been involved in security even since your Air Force days, or when did you get in, into that? My first job was actually before I could drive. I was working for a video store in a small town in southeastern Ohio, and the woman that started the video store decided to start an internet service provider. And so I actually became a systems administrator, security, web page design for that ISP. That was my first job. And I went off to be a computer science major and I did communications in the Air Force. My last assignment in the Air Force actually put me on loan to the White House to be the chief information security officer for the White House. Oh, we got to hear more about that. Well, your first job sounds a lot more glamorous than mine. I was a dishwasher. (laughs) That is just important. We're both keeping things clean, right? So I was, yeah, I was, I was in charge of that, that the security of the, of the dishes <laughs> <laughs> probably didn't do the good a job on that either. Actually, my first job was a paper out, but that was early, early days. That's great. So from a security perspective, what is the biggest security threat today for your customers? Well, I think when people talk about cybersecurity risk, and I talk to large and small organizations all the time, I think it gets confusing, it gets hard, it gets complicated. There's lots of there are a lot of geeks in security like me that have a hard time translating security to to what normal business folks understand. And so what I like to say is, you know, cybersecurity digital risk is just like any other risk. And I, I really try to break it down into three buckets. You have operational risk, the idea that you need to do certain things to make your business function. You have legal and compliance risk. There are certain things that the government or other organizations require you to do, and you have to make sure you're complying with those things. And then you have brand and reputation risk. You know, you you have to promote a certain amount of trust and confidence in your brand to maintain your customers. So from a customer perspective, you know, a lot of them are focused on operational risk. Like how do we make sure that we can keep doing the things that our business needs to do to continue operating? From a partnership perspective, a lot of the partners we're working with, I, you know, I think we've moved into this world where it, it's about brand and brand and reputation. I think it's pretty much accepted that a breach is going to happen. And so the question now is, how do you handle those breaches? How do you communicate? How do you inspire trust and confidence when that when that bad event does occur? Is there a particular type of breach that's the highest risk right now? You know, there's there's certainly a widespread, whether it's a phishing attack, you know, most most attacks today, believe it or not, are involving stolen credentials. Um, so you people fall for a phishing attack and give up their credentials and those credentials work on multiple sites and, you know, a compromise spreads out from there. Those stolen credentials or hacked credentials can lead to attacks like ransomware. So a lot of times when I see a ransomware attack, it's because a remote access server has been brute force. The password's either been guessed or was stolen through a phishing attack and then ransomware was spread. So to me, it's all about credentials and protecting those credentials and two-factor authentication. Yeah, there was just on the news that gal from Shark Tank, who I guess was a victim of a phishing attack, right? Yeah, that was actually, you know, it was a kind of like a spear phishing attack where somebody acted like her assistant and said, hey, I need you to transfer about $400,000 to take care of a home renovation. And that wasn't out of the norm and they didn't validate it and transferred the money and it was gone. Wow. Is that actually a term, spearfishing, or were you playing on Shark Tank there? No, they have. (laughs) 
spear phishing is targeted phishing. So if you if you have phishing where you're you're the Nigerian prince scam, that's considered phishing. Spear phishing is kind of going after a certain person, and then they also have a term called whaling, which is going after a big executive. So this could be this could be whaling or spear phishing. Maybe we'll call it sharking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a new a new category. Holy cow! Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your transformation. I think you've had two as a company from what we spoke about, and one is converting your model to the SaaS model, the as-a-service model, and then a channel transformation. But let's start on the first one. What was the journey for you going from a kind of that traditional on-prem model to the SaaS model? Great, great question. When we started, you know, the passion for me was how do you bring security to small and mid-sized companies affordably and effectively? And we had this idea of this model where you could start to protect um, thousands of companies and get them visibility into their network traffic by having a centralized capability to monitor for threats and score threats and block threats. And that led us down the path of actually deploying an appliance on our customer networks. Because an appliance actually gives you a little bit more capability to do security. It's easier to drop something on the network in theory, and you can move forward from there. What we found is actually maintaining that hardware is difficult. Hardware fails for all sorts of bizarre reasons. And so the supportability was tough and the price points there were tough as well. You start to drift up to price points of, you know, $2,500 to $3,000 a month, which at that point you're starting to get a lot of friction with traditional managed security service providers. And so we talked to a lot of customers. We talked to a lot of partners, talked to mentors, and we were advised pretty heavily to see about transitioning from an appliance hardware-based model into a software as a service model. So that was the first part of that transition. And are you 100% as a service now? You've done away completely with the appliance or is that still out there? We still have that capability and there are still use cases where you just need hardware. Kind of the fact of the matter is that in order to get visibility on a network and protect a network, you need to know what's happening on that network. And in 99% of the cases, we can interact with that firewall and, and get data from the firewall and the network and, and provide blocking instructions back to that firewall. There's some very unique cases where you get into Internet of Things or audiovisual or other what we call edge cases where there may not be a traditional firewall on that network and you need to be creative about how you instrument and protect that network. So having our heritage come out of the hardware world gives us the ability to, to have a little bit more broad support for some of these use cases where a traditional SaaS company wouldn't. What did that transformation do to you from a financial perspective, you know, as you looked at cash flow of, you know, bigger upfront payments to more of a subscription model and, and your margins, what kind of impact did that have? During the transition, it was not easy. Uh, if you've watched Silicon Valley kind of pivot, 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 <laughs> it, <laughs> the idea of pivoting as a as an early stage startup is hard. You kind of have to take this risk and gamble and, you know, revenue goes down and it gets hard and you have to go lean and you have to be scrappy and, you know, kudos to my team for surviving it. It was, it was not an easy transition. But our, our customers were very supportive of us through it. And we have folks that have stuck with us through it all. So, you know, it, it was a tough transition. But at the end, it's been worth it. Margins are up. We can be on a network in 10 minutes now, up and running without having to ship hardware, without having to, to configure anything. Um, so it, it's completely transformed the business. Are you familiar with TSIA and the work that they've done on this? I'm not. Yeah, it's an outfit you should look into. Technology Services Industry Industry Association. I might be getting that wrong. But I had a gal from TSIA on the show a couple episodes ago, Ann McClelland, who's starting a new research practice on as-a-service channel optimization. 
mm-hmm. but they've written some fantastic books about this topic and how companies can can migrate to this model. And uh, the last guest I had, who was a channel partner, went through this as well, the same kind of story you're telling. And they talk about swallowing the fish, which is this curve that you have of, you know, your your costs going up for a while as you're making that transition. Right. And your cash flow going down because you're migrating to a subscription model. And so what you were that that pain you were describing, they they call swallowing the fish or uh, you could swallowing the shark or the whale. <laughs> well, as, a, as a fly fisherman, you know, I love fish based analogies. There you go. How long did that fish swallowing take you till you came out the other side? I'd say all in all, it was about a year, a year and a half, because we had to reconfigure our infrastructure. And we also had to kind of navigate go to market. So you're no longer selling appliances direct to the upper end of the mid market. And so what does it look like to sell SaaS to the upper end of the mid market? What does it look like to go down market? What does it look like to find channel partners? How do you find how do you find managed service providers to work with? And that's ultimately where we've ended up with is you know, we found that by adding a lot of value to managed service providers who are having a hard time differentiating and have customers that that don't have massive budgets, that by developing very strong relationships with these managed service providers, we're helping them and they're helping us. Okay, now you're segueing into that second topic, the partner topic. Um, and you didn't start out with a channel strategy. You, you started out with a direct strategy. That's right? That's correct. And when did you, when did the light bulb go on saying, wait a second, I'm, I'm missing something here? Well, it's one of those things as, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner that you look back and you're like, this is completely obvious. Why didn't I see it? <laughs> <laughs> like, like a lot of things in life, right? <laughs> yeah. But over the course of the last summer, we had acquired another company last year to, to expand out our team that brought in some new leaders to our team. It brought in a new sales team. And what I've really enjoyed about our sales team is they're data-driven and very nimble and able to iterate really fast. And so over the course of about six months through the summer and fall of last year, we were able to iterate through a bunch of different go-to-markets and finally found some really interesting approaches to working with MSPs that just work. So what did that iteration look like? How were you, were you testing the market? What were you doing? Yeah, it's everything from A-B testing of messages to figuring out, you know, what's your cost to get a demo or to get on a phone call with a managed service provider on Reddit versus LinkedIn versus Facebook versus pay-to-click advertising. We found a lot of value, you know, for folks that's, that look at the security market, it's a really noisy, messy market. And there are massive startups and massive companies that are spending more money than they're making on marketing. And so it's just a quagmire to me of marketing and, and a lot of I'm not sure false claims is right, but a lot of people saying they're doing a lot more than they're actually doing. We found a lot of value as a company by publishing content. So for example, in the September, August timeframe of last year, we we published a report and then we published another report around Christmas time of this year around managed service providers. And so spending the time to do the analytics and find real content and sharing that with the community, not marketing fluff, but real content. We found by publishing reports like our managed service provider report, that's worth a lot more than advertising in many ways. So talk about Reddit. So was Reddit used one of your strategies for partner recruiting? Yes. Yep. So there are, you know, there, there are groups in Reddit that are talking about managed service providers and the challenge that managed service providers take. And I, you know, I love Reddit. The thing I love about Reddit is people are blunt and, you know, you, you go in there and you can be crucified and people don't mind calling you out. Yes. And as a founder, to be honest, like I hate vanity metrics and I hate all this, you know, this idea of confirmation bias, people telling you what you want to hear. I'd rather somebody tell me you're, you're, you know, you sound like an idiot. 
And so you can learn and, and iterate faster. But those likes on LinkedIn, they feel so good. <laughs> that they do. <laughs> and I'm sure half of them are bot accounts. Oh, man. Oh, don't tell me that. Now you burst my bubble. So that's interesting. I have never used Reddit as a, as a recruiting tool or, or engaging with partners. Are a lot of partners or MSPs on Reddit? There are a lot of them. You know, the MSP, I love the MSP community. Like these are, these are scrappy, passionate people. You know, you certainly have the very, very large managed service providers. You know, there's something over 40,000 managed service providers in the U.S., according to numbers I've seen. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these are, you know, hardworking, talented, scrappy folks who are, you know, trying to succeed at taking care of their customers that have a hard time affording services. And so, you know, you, you find those those hardworking MSPs in places like Reddit, where they're every day, they're looking for new ways to support their customers at a better value. Interesting. What other tools are you using? We're pretty focused. We found, you know, our, our sales team has found, you know, it makes more sense to advertise on certain days at certain times than others. And so we're really looking at how do you optimize not just the advertising side, but also the pipeline side. So, you know, looking at HubSpot as a tool to manage the flow of the sales pipeline and how do you automate that process? So, you know, when somebody reaches out for a demo, how do you automate six or seven messages to kind of follow up without being too annoying? How do you automate the scheduling of a demo? So how do you take all of the, all of the cost out of the sales process? That's where a lot of our focus is going now. Interesting. Do you have other analytics tools that you're using? We have a whole suite of tools that we're using. I mean, the API integration, the Zapier tools, like all of these tools integrate with each other and you and you almost have to be a technologist in the marketing space now to kind of stitch these things all together. But but again, our sales team is doing a great job of, of doing that. We're also in the process of doing some webinars. So we're, I'm going to be hosting a webinar in about a week on helping secure managed service providers. So going back to this theme of not just promoting yourself from an advertising perspective, but giving back and letting people judge you on the quality of your content, I think is a it's putting yourself out there, but I think it also develops better relationships in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. People don't want to be sold to. They want they want valuable content, and then they'll, then they'll come to you. Exactly. So, what did it look like? You 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 decide you want to start up a channel. You start doing some things on Reddit to, to gauge some interest and start recruiting partners. Did you put together a, a formal, documented channel strategy? Uh, not really. It's kind of more of an iterative approach, kind of the the lead approach to marketing and advertising. It's let's see what works and, you know, let's capture metrics. Let's see, you know, for X dollars to spend, how many leads do we get? How many of those leads convert? Doing A-B testing around those messages using, we've actually started to integrate some of these tools that will do A-B testing around landing pages to try to optimize the stickiness of your, of your sites. So all those sorts of things are helpful. You know, to be honest though, I think, you know, getting somebody on the call is the first step. But the second step is how do you actually get them interested in, in looking at what you're doing and trying it? And that's where we've, we've had a lot of success because our tool was designed for the ground up for small and mid-sized companies. It's not an enterprise tool that's been dumbed down, which is, which is a really important differentiation to make. When we get partners on the phone, you know, in a 30-minute phone call, they get really excited. And because I come from a technical background and because our team is, is tired of a lot of the marketing fluff, we are happy to do real world demos and testing rather than making people sit through a bunch of demos. It's let's just deploy it on your network. It takes 10 minutes. We'll do it for free for a short period of time and you can see the value. And that's how we really win customers over is by being willing to, to put it in their hands and let them try it. Is that speed as important as the, the actual security that you're providing in terms of forgetting that first you know, level of interest? It, the speed of deployment 
Yeah. Yeah. I think to balance it the two ways, part of what we're doing, any security expert at any Fortune 500 could do what we're doing on a network. It's the idea of collecting logs and getting visibility into what's coming in and out of a network. It's applying automation and analytics to find the good and the bad and the ugly stuff. It's allowing somebody to sift and interact with that and then blocking it back at the firewall. And, you know, none of those processes, you know, at at their basic level are rocket science. You know, people are doing that all over the world, big and small. What's unique is how you do that in a way that doesn't require a human in the loop. That's the key to getting the price points down for this market so they actually work. So certainly the speed and ease of deployment is what separates us from everybody else. You don't have to manage a SIM tool. You don't have to configure how the format of your messages. You don't have to think about any of that. You can just uh, turn on logging, NetFlow, or Syslog out of your firewall, and we do the rest. So that that is a, a true differentiator for us is that simplicity and ease of use. So have you migrated to where your customer is predominantly now the MSP, not the end customer? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, if we get direct customers reaching out, we'll try to find an MSP that we're working with to hand them over to. Okay. To be able to do what we're doing efficiently, you know, by letting the managed service provider maintain their strong customer relationships and take care of the support side, it gives the managed service provider the ability to upsell and better support their customers. I don't care about the upsell on other services around what we're doing. We'd much rather have the managed service provider take that. We just want to be really good at providing the technology and automation to protect these networks. So your sales team really is selling to the channel. They're selling to the MSPs. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. And do you have a channel team in terms of, you know, partner enablement or partner co-marketing and things like that? Yeah, we actually have a a VP of customer success is his title. Um, Tom, he is his whole role in life in our company is to make sure from first touch to last touch that it's the best relationship they've ever had. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if a if a partner decides that they want to go work with somebody else, that's fine. You know, we still treat them with respect and dignity. And we've had a number of occasions where, you know, for for one reason or another, a partner will move off of our platform somewhere else and then they'll come back. Um, so, you know, for us, it's about the relationship. So VP of customer success is is synonymous with partner success, right? You you see it the same way. Exactly. Yeah, that's fantastic. Interesting. And where are you at now partner-wise in terms of, you know, global global partner channel or more North America? So we're primarily focused North America, but because of the platforms that we've been advertising on and because of the word of mouth, we have customers globally. We have customers in Australia and Europe and Africa. So we have customers all over, although we're primarily targeting North America. Okay. You know, we've been reading about cyber attacks of MSPs themselves and how vulnerable they are. And people are looking to get to the end customer through the MSP. Are you, are you seeing that happen? Or, and are you, is your solution helping to protect the MSPs themselves? Absolutely. With every deployment or every, every partnership agreement we sign with a managed service provider, we throw in protection for their own network for free. Because we know that, you know, locking down their network is, is step number one. You know, these attackers are not necessarily, they are very talented, but they are not necessarily sophisticated, nor do they have to be. So because most of these networks are unmonitored, you can, you can attack most small businesses networks from an IP address that's in Nigeria that's been used for thousands of other attacks and nobody will know because nobody's watching. And so the ability to provide a lot of value really quickly is there. From a managed service provider these attackers have figured out that 
it's a lot more efficient to go after the managed service provider because if I get into a managed service provider network and get credentials and get access to tools like their RMM tools, I can now compromise 100 networks in one swap. So I'd much rather collect 100 ransoms for ransomware than one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, scary stuff. What's been the biggest lesson or, or lessons that you've learned, you know, embarking on this channel strategy? Were there any, you know, oops, mistakes that you made? It's like, okay, I got to correct that one. You know, I think from a mistakes perspective, as, as you're developing a scalable, affordable, easy to use platform, there are always technology mistakes you make along the way. And so we've certainly had our fair share of, of hiccups early on in terms of kind of having things work the way we really want them to work. We've been able to overcome those issues by having good relationships with our partners. And, you know, we found, you know, the traditional reaction may be to try to hide, hide errors and issues and mistakes from your customers. So maybe they won't see it. We found if you communicate up front clearly and fast, that they're willing to work with you through a lot of things because, you know, we're providing them a lot of value that nobody else is providing them. From a relationship perspective, you know, I, I wouldn't say there have been mistakes because we're, we're all about just supporting them. And, you know, there might in, in many cases be some time wasted in terms of kind of running down paths that that customers are, you know, our MSP customers are asking us to do more than we probably should. But I'd much rather invest in that relationship than not. Yeah. Yeah. And like it, it all comes down to relationships, doesn't it? And then the trust that you build. Yeah. With your partners. Yeah. And the great thing about this channel strategy is, you know, we have we have managed service providers that are signing up for license packages of, of 100, 200, 300 firewalls at a time. And so that's a much more efficient sales process than trying to go one company at a time. So that efficiency makes it worth it. Yeah. What's your pricing strategy? Are you just having like a price that you have to the MSP and let them decide how to price it to the market? For the most part, yeah. Because we're channel driven, we don't publicly talk about prices very much because it's, it puts our channel partners in a bad position. But what we have found, what was kind of nuanced that I didn't expect to find is, you know, they're maybe the top 10% of these customers in the small and mid market can pay higher amounts for firewall protection. And they should probably because their networks are seeing a lot more traffic. And I think a lot of people will focus on per seat pricing and focusing on those customers where there's a lot of value, where, where they can pay more, right? What we have found is by providing, by going to a managed service provider that might have 100 customers and saying, we can support your 10 customers at a price point where you're going to make money and we'll make money and your customer is going to be protected better than they can be anywhere else. But we're also going to price the other 90 in a way that they can actually afford. So you can come out holistically and protect all your customers. And those other 90 may not have a very good margin, but that's okay because it's about protecting all of your customers, you know, working through this together. And so that, that idea of, of providing pricing that covers 100% of their customers made a big difference for us in the market. And we had partners that, you know, said, hey, I love you. I love your service. I love what you're doing, but you can only support half my customers. So come back and talk to me when you can support everybody. And when you come back to them with, with those lower price points that can support the lower end, you know, it's, it's really fast to, to, to move forward in those relationships. That's a really interesting point and something I think we can all think about in our pricing strategy with the channel to go after uh, their, a partner's entire customer base. That's really cool. All right, let's go back a little bit on your journey. You've got a really interesting background, starting out communications officer with the Air Force, right? That's correct. And when I heard communications officer, I, I was thinking, oh, you're, you're out doing PR, but that's not what it's about, <laughs> is it? So my time in the Air Force was before they actually had a cybersecurity career field. They had this one career field called communications officer, and it covered everything from 
records management and web page design, which was my first job in the Air Force, to satellite communications, network security. So it was a pretty broad swath of, of job responsibilities. A very technical role. In some ways, yeah. I think as an officer in the military, you know, your job is to lead and manage teams. And so, okay. you know, the teams that you have are the technical experts and your job is just to find out, you know, how to best utilize their resources to achieve the mission. What would that role, what would be an equivalent in a corporation? You know, I think you're looking as a young officer, you're a manager, right? It's a, it's a basic manager position. I still remember, you know, my first my first job in the Air Force, I was 21. And I was overseeing a group of about 25 people. And some of these folks were, you know, 20 years older than me, right? So it's kind of intimidating to come in as a, as a manager over people that have decades of more experience than you do. So, you know, it's kind of like a, a young, I'm not sure you get that role in corporate America as much where you graduate from college and you're all of a sudden a manager. Yeah. But that's kind of how I would relate it. And that's the amazing thing about the military is the level of, of responsibility put on very young people. There's a big learning curve. It's a great forge, I think, to develop leadership, whether folks stay in the military or, or transition out into the business community. You know, and whether you're enlisted or officer, I don't think it matters. You know, that you're, you're given unique experiences regardless of what you're doing in the military. What led you to the military in the first place? My grandfather was one of the first people in the Air Force. So he was Army Air Corps and Air Force and mm -hmm. was a flight surgeon. And so I always kind of idolized him and what he did. And I wanted to fly. And I ultimately ended up not flying, obviously. But I was a computer science major in college and went in to be a communications officer. Wow. Your, your grandfather was a flight surgeon. And where did he serve? He served all over. He actually worked on, I remember hearing stories of him working in White Sands, New Mexico, on some of the early high altitude masks that were ultimately used for astronauts. So, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you for your service. Well, I think the country for giving me the opportunity to serve, I feel like many folks that have served have had much harder times than I have. So I'm, I'm just thankful for the opportunity. Where did that opportunity take you from, from the Air Force? Well, I kind of had an interesting transition. My first assignment was Ramstein in Germany. So I spent a lot of time in Europe. And then I went to the Pentagon where I was doing nuclear command and control. So the place where they actually turn the two keys that you see in the movie to launch the nuclear weapons, I was working in that facility for about three years. Holy cow. And then I was sent over to a group called the White House Communications Agency, where I actually got to be on the road with the president. I was in charge of networks and radios and satellite communication for the president when he traveled. And so I got that to was do Bush? that. That was pre under President Bush. Yeah. Wow. It was a really cool opportunity. And while I was in that job, I actually got a phone call in the middle of the night from my commander that said, how do you how do you feel about going to the White House to do cyber? And so that was the beginning of my transition out of the military because I, I was supposed to go there for six months and ended up staying at the White House as a civilian employee. That began my transition into civilian life. So before that, when you were traveling, were you on Air Force One or how did that work? We would always travel four or five days ahead of Air Force One. So we would fly on a C-17 with the limo and the motorcade and the helicopters and all the comms equipment and get everything set up ahead of time. And so when the president arrived, he had all the infrastructure he needed to do his job. Were you actually in the White House itself? The White House Communications Agency is not in the White House. It's a, a nearby military installation. But when I was assigned to the White House to do cyber, I was actually in a building right next to the White House and spent a lot of time in the West Wing and in the Eisenhower building. Man, that must have been incredible. It was very cool. I, I still think one of the, my one of the favorite moments in my life was because I was a civilian employee and not a political, I, I stayed through the transition between Bush and Obama. And we were responsible for transitioning all of the IT infrastructure away, um, 
out of one presidency to the next. Mm -hmm. And so while the inauguration parade for Obama was passing in front of the White House, I was walking through the White House itself. And to hear that music and to be in this place where the largest peaceful transfer of power in the world is taking place was just one of those experiences that, you know, you know I'll never forget. It just sent chills down my back. I bet that had to be incredible. That wasn't when uh, certain keys on the keyboard went missing, was it? <laughs> that That's the, the alleged <laughs> story there happened between Clinton and Bush. Okay. <laughs> Man. Well, are there any other stories you can share from that, that period? I mean, not, not many people get to serve <laughs> alongside a president. Um, another story I like to tell is like, uh, I, I don't know if you remember the Saturday Night Live sketches of MacGruber, where he's like yeah. trying to disarm a bomb and it blows up. Right, right. <laughs> I remember very clearly one morning at like 530 in the morning, I got a call at home and it was the deputy chief of staff and he was walking to Marine One, you know, on the lawn of the White House. And he's like, the chief of staff's BlackBerry has stopped working. Can you fix it? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, paper clip and some bubble gum. I can get it going. Yeah. So if you remember, if you've ever worked with Blackberries, there's actually like a control alt delete sequence you can do like with Windows on a BlackBerry. And so I was like, have him press these three keys and restart it. And it fixed it. And so I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. Wow. What a genius. That's, that's really cool. And then, so from the white house, then you went, was that from there that you formed dark cubed? No, I actually went from the white house to a, a very small business that had a pretty strategic relationship with the department of Homeland security. So I spent five and a half years working with the part of department of Homeland security that's responsible for cybersecurity protection for the federal government and critical infrastructure. There's wow. a large technology program there called the Einstein program or the National Cybersecurity Protection System. Um, it's probably a five to six billion dollar system now, but I helped work on that in, in some strategic roles. You must have had a pretty amazing security clearance. Well, certainly when I was in the Pentagon, I had a high security clearance and, and to serve in the White House near the president, you have to have another high level security clearance. Because I was ROTC in college, I actually got my first security clearance in college. So I, I've had a security clearance ever since I was a freshman in college. So it's made for a very fascinating life, as you can imagine, to hold a clearance for your entire life and not being able to do anything. Every speeding ticket you have to report. Man. And you were working in Homeland Security at a very interesting time, too, of, of obviously very huge threats against the country. It's an interesting part of my experience. When I was at the Pentagon doing the nuclear command and control mission, it was actually at the same time that some of the big nation state hacks were starting to be realized. Mm -hmm. And so those were the early days of what is referred to as the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative. And so I was being briefed at a high level about what was going on in these nation state hacks. And when I went to the White House to do cyber, intrusion detection systems were, were unplugged, firewalls were end of life. You know, the infrastructure there was not in, very, in a very good place. And President Bush at the time was being briefed by the National Security Council, National Security Staff on this comprehensive national cybersecurity initiative on how do we as a country think about cybersecurity. So I had a front row seat there at the White House to those processes. And then when I went to DHS, a number of those CINCI is what it's called, a number of those CINCI initiatives were being implemented and I had a chance mm -hmm. to work on them directly, whether it's the Einstein program or IT supply chain risk management, which is the concern of foreign powers having intimate access to our supply chain and causing issues in, in that supply chain because of their access to manufacturing and distribution processes. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I, I just imagine, <laughs> Vince, that you have all these stories that if you told me, you'd have to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always say to the conspiracy theorists, like I've worked in 
some of the more interesting places I've been in underground facilities. I have clearances. And, you know, in most cases, I spent a lot of time saying like, this can't be the real command center, right? There's got to be another one somewhere else because, <laughs> you, know, you know, government's government and people are, you know, people that work in those places are honest, hardworking people that if they see something wrong, they're going to call it out. And so, you know, a lot of these conspiracy theories just wouldn't exist. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the classified nature of what's happening is more about protecting our capabilities and the people that are helping deliver those capabilities and less about keeping secrets. Yeah. You know, you have a very unique background. Not many folks get to to have that kind of experience that you've had. How do you think that positions you running Dark Cube and maybe advantages that it gives you having that kind of background? In some ways, I feel a little bit disgruntled about the security community because I think a lot of solutions are being over-engineered. Like, I think, I think there's a really bright line in security about, are you trying to stop a nation state from attacking your company, right? So are you trying to, if Iran or China or any of these other countries were to target you, is your goal to detect that and stop it? Because if so, you can invest millions of dollars and you may never have a chance of stopping it. And if not, there are so many capabilities and we're, this is what we're doing for our customers. There are so many things you can do to stop the the basic known attacks at scale if you say, I'm going to focus on the things that most companies are seeing. In all the incident response engagements I've done, it is very rare to see an attack that's from unknown infrastructure or using a zero day. I, I don't think I've ever even seen a zero day actually in the wild in an incident response I've done. They're all known bad infrastructure, known exploits. It's all very obvious when you get in there. And because of the over-engineering in this community, you know, people are spending a lot of money on solutions that are never going to work. And so, you know, that's my passion, not as just, not only in, in terms of how do we protect small and mid-sized companies, but how do you bring automation? How do you bring the knowledge that exists out, out in this community? Because it exists. If, if somebody stands up a host in DigitalOcean and starts attacking stuff, somebody out there knows and is sharing it. And if you can tap into that sharing and automate the protection, you can protect these businesses without them even having to know how to spell cybersecurity. And that's where we need to get to as a community. Interesting. You mentioned zero day. That sounds like the title of a Tom Clancy book. What what does that mean? So there's this idea of a vulnerability. So let's talk about, you know, you're running a certain type of web server on your infrastructure and you have it patched to the latest version, right? You've installed all the patches. It's secure. If somebody discovers a vulnerability for that web server, that will get them administrative access or root access, and nobody else knows about it, that's considered a zero-day flaw because there's no patch for it and it's going to work. And there's an amount of time that it takes from when that vulnerability or flaw is discovered to when a patch is deployed. And that may be a week, it may be a month, it may be a year. And so that zero day is the start of the clock in terms of trying to patch a vulnerability. Gotcha. Okay. Well, this is fascinating stuff. <laughs> I'm just so intrigued by it because I don't know a lot about it. And there are probably a lot of questions that I'm not asking you that my my audience was wishing I would ask you, <laughs> but I don't know what those are, so I can't. So are there any questions I didn't ask that you would have wished I'd asked you? It's a good question. I think, you know, a lot of times we get in discussions around differentiation. And so people try to compare us to a SIM tool or which is like a alien vault is a, is a SIM tool or Sumo Logic or Splunk at the high end. And a SIM tool is kind of like a dashboard that an analyst can work with. We talk some about, you know, automating threat intelligence. So people try to compare us to threat intelligence tools. And, and typically what I talk about is, you know, those, those product differentiations, those product categorization, and, you know, I referred to it early as kind of the Gartner magic quadrant method. That works if you're an enterprise and you have a large security team and big budgets. Unfortunately, down market, 
trying to differentiate between those products in terms of how you're deploying on a network just doesn't work because you don't have the time and money to manage all of these tools. And if you if you start to try, you're just going to get overwhelmed. And so the way I like to talk about what we're doing is we take that value chain of log aggregation and threat intelligence integration and SIM and automation and orchestration, and we kind of turn it 90 degrees and, and go all the way through it and try to deliver that value chain in a little bit different way. And, you know, if there are if I'm allowed to do a small little marketing plug, you know, we're happy to, you know, we're happy to let people try it. And if it works great, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. And so let's not waste a lot of time on marketing and demos and just, just give it a try. All right. So if any of our audience wants to give it a try, how do they do that? How do they reach you? Just go to darkcubed.com, D-A-R-K-C-U-B-E-D.com. You can email info at darkcubed.com and we'll get back to you. And it's pretty simple and easy. All right. And what if they want to reach you and, and hear more about you and what you're doing? I am on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn and, you know, would love to keep a conversation there. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Vince Chrysler. So, you know, drop me a note there and would love to carry on a conversation. I'm always happy to talk with folks and, and give back to the community. Awesome. Well, Vince, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for, for coming on our show. Thank you, Rob. It was, it was a great discussion and I enjoyed the time. All right. Best of luck in the channel. All right. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Man, what a great chat with Vince. What an honor, too, to speak with an Air Force veteran who served Homeland Security, the White House, and a president of the United States. Thank you, Vince. I really loved his creative approaches to building a channel, like using Reddit for partner recruiting and engagement, and getting really blunt feedback along the way. And he's giving back to the MSP community through valuable content that they publish for their partners, and they're protecting their partners, too, from serious security risks with their product. Thanks again also to Mike Kelly and the Channel Institute for sponsoring our show. And now for your special offer that I mentioned, just go to channelinstitute.com, find the class that you want to register for, and you'll get an immediate 10% discount off of that course just by entering Journeys2020. That's the discount code. Enter Journeys2020 at checkout. I'll add that offer to the show notes from today's show that you can find at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ48. And be sure to subscribe to Channel Journeys wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another great guest. Until then, please stay safe, stay healthy, stay positive, and have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure. 